I think most of you are familiar with our Sunday evening series by now, working on faith walkers. Started in Hebrews chapter 11 and looking at a number of those characters that were honored for their faith. And we've done a few other characters that aren't in Hebrews 11. Uh, but we started last week, or last time, on Noah, uh, one that's mentioned in Hebrews 11. In fact, we spent the whole time just looking at Hebrews 11, verse 7, uh, where Noah is mentioned in the hall of faith. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And we went through that piece by piece, and uh, I hope we learned a lot about faith and uh, what faith walking is, just from that little description. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about the days of Noah. And the premise for this is uh, Jesus himself in Luke chapter 17 said, just as it was in the days of Noah. And we'll come back and find out what that is later, but he talks about the days of Noah as being a, a certain time, a special time, a unique some way. And so we're going to work through Genesis 6 and go back a little ways in chapter 4 and see if we can learn something about what the days of Noah were like and then try to apply that to what the days are like today. All right, let's start in Genesis chapter 6, and I summarized a number of verses up there at the top of your handout, 5 and 6 and 11 and 12. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And we know that his reaction to that was he flooded the earth. So let's just look at the, those verses plus some others here and see how this came about. I guess that's what I'm really trying to do in this early part of this is how did we get there? I mean, look where we are in the Bible. You know, we're at Genesis chapter 6. We haven't made it very far. <laughs> we, we just got started, it seems. And things went bad so fast that God said, i, I got to start over. This is a mess. How did it get that bad that quickly? So let's work through that a little bit, see if we can understand it. Things seemed, from a worldly point of view, to be going pretty well. Let's go back to chapter 4. And this comes right after Cain and Abel. And Cain and his wife had Enoch and uh, then some others. And we finally got down to Lamech in just a few generations. And in verse 19 it says, Lamech married Two women. Okay. First case of bigamy in the Bible. Uh, we get questions all the time on Know Your Bible. Why did God allow bigamy? I don't know why he let it be so prevalent. Uh, but it just was prevalent. 
And this is the first case. Lamech, descendant of Cain, had two wives, married two women. One named Ada and the other Zillah. This guy married everybody from A to Z. I guarantee you. He was something. Actually, there were just two of them. Uh, but it goes on and tells us about his family a little bit and what was happening at this time, just a few generations into civilization uh, and mankind. And it says, Ada gave birth to Jabal. Now, he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. So one of the boys was responsible for the farming world, basically, uh, invented the tent. Before that, I guess they didn't have tents, uh, and kind of became the nomadic herdsman uh, that became prevalent in the world. Uh, another one, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all who play the harp and the flute. Okay, So this is the artistic kid. Uh, this is the one that likes music and all of that. He invented wind instruments and stringed instruments, and his family evidently was pretty artistic. And then the third son, or the other son, by Zillah, Zillah also had a son, Tubalcain, who forged all kind of tools out of bronze and iron. Okay, so Tubalcain was the metallurgist. He's the one that figured out how to work uh, bronze and make tools and, and do all of that. So this is the very start of the world. Uh, civilization, where uh, society is progressing, coming right along. We got uh, herdsmen and uh, people living in tents and traveling around, and we got musical instruments and arts, and we got metallurgy, and things are progressing pretty well, it seems. But it starts to break down almost immediately. Okay, look at the first thing that happens. Uh, verse 23 Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain has avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Okay? That's all we know about it. We don't know what happened. We don't know why. Uh, we don't know how, why he killed somebody. It may have been in self-defense. may have been completely understandable, uh, but it sounds like a revenge murder. Uh, this guy wounded me. He did something to me, and I killed him. I killed him, and I'm going to get away with it, is basically what Lamech says here. So we've got carrying on in his ancestor's tradition. Remember, he came from Cain, uh, and we don't know any details about it, but that's what it sounds like. Okay? So we're, we're starting down that road, and then chapter 5 just gives us kind of a recount of the uh, family tree and counts up all the years and all of that. But then in 6, it gets around to telling us about why the flood came. Okay? Now, we're still in that time zone that we were in in chapter 4, but it expounds on that, and it says in chapter 6, verse 1, when men began to increase in number on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he's mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, 
When the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. All right, now we're going to spend an inordinate amount of time on that because that passage, verses 1 through 4, has all kinds of weird beliefs about it. Uh, the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and the Nephilim being in the earth. Your translation may say there were giants in the earth. Okay, you can listen, you can buy books, you can re-listen to preachers that tell you that angels came and mated with human women. And the offspring was giants. You can hear some other crazy stories too, but that's one of them. So what does chapter 6 verse 1 through 4 mean? Because... It tells us why God flooded us. Okay, It tells us what the problem was that made God grieve. Okay, So we've got to figure one through four out as best we can. And uh, let me see if I can help us with that a little bit. Uh, basically, if you can buy all the books in the world ever written about this passage, you can find three explanations. You can probably find a few other real obscure ones, but basically they break down into three. Number one is that angels came down to earth and married human women and had kids, really big kids, okay, giants. Uh, so that's a, a cosmological mixed race, if you will, the angelic race and human race. Okay? Second explanation is, well, it's a religious mixed race thing. The people of Seth, who were godly people in general, the Sethites, married the Cainites. And Cain's family wasn't good, and Seth's family was. So some in the godly family began to marry the ungodly. Uh, they were kind of the, the black sheep of the Seth family, I guess, if they were marrying the Cainites. Uh, it's kind of an unequally yoked thing would be the, the sin if there was, a, if you want to call it that, uh, of this religious mixing of races. Okay, That's the second idea. The third one that you'll find is that powerful men began to marry uh, common females, commoners, there were aristocrats that were powerful and ran things, and they married or took for themselves any women that they wanted. Anybody they saw was beautiful, they just took them. That's a socially mixed problem, if you want to call it that. Okay, so those are three options. Let's work through them. First, angels and humans. Okay, um, There's some... Um, secular, non-canonical kind of stories about that. You read the book of First Enoch, uh, written about 200 B.C., and it tells this story about 200 angels that got to looking at earth and decided, human women are pretty cute, uh, so let's go down there. And 200 of them came down and picked wives and had children, and the children were giants and all that. So you can read that in a few places because... That's what some people have taken this passage to mean. Um, but I don't think that's not only not the best explanation, I don't even think it's possible. A uh, few reasons. Number one, there's nowhere else that mentions anything about that. The Bible doesn't say anything about angels and humans. In fact, the Bible says 
it's impossible in one sense. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 12, 25, that angels don't marry. That's not the way angels work. We don't know exactly how angels work, uh, but they aren't in the marrying business. Maybe it's because they don't have a physical body, but they don't marry or give in marriage, Jesus said. Uh, another thing against that idea is because of this, whatever this was, God destroyed the earth. Okay, if it was the angel's fault, why would he punish the earth? I mean, they're the ones that came down here and messed things up. Why didn't he just smoke the 200 angels and everything would be all right? But he didn't. He got rid of all the earth. Okay. Uh, some other problems. How would an angel procreate? The Bible doesn't say anything about that. It says they don't, basically. So I don't think that's a good explanation. It sounds a little like it, especially if you got a translation that says there were giants on the earth and all of that, and sons of God and daughters of men. Um, Sounds a little like it, but I don't think that's a good one. And bear in mind, I'm kind of short-circuiting this. If you want to study all the word studies of what sons of God means and daughters of men and all that, you can learn a lot more. But number one, I don't care for that at all. Number two is the Sethites marrying Canaanites being unequally yoked. Uh, there's a few problems with that. Uh, mainly it's the, the grammar, the way the word men is used. Uh, there in chapter one, verse 1, it says men begin to increase, and it's talking about mankind in general. And then all of a sudden, if you believe that story, it switches down in verse 2 to the daughters of men and means the daughters of Cain. Uh, that doesn't work if you do the grammar exactly right. He should have called them something else. Uh, so all of humanity and just Canaanites doesn't seem to work too well. Uh, the giant thing really doesn't work. If just Sethites and Canaanites got married, why would giants come out? You know, where's the DNA for that? So that one really doesn't make a whole lot of sense, although... I'd buy that one before I bought number one. You know? And if somebody wants to say that's what this is, uh, it could produce the kind of wickedness that got the earth destroyed. If good people that believed in God started marrying people that didn't believe in God, the Canaanites, it could cause troubles. That's what happened in Israel. The Israelites started marrying the pagans, and God said, don't do that. That'll mess everything up. Well, it did. So that's in the realm of possibility, but I still don't think it's the best explanation. The third one, I think, is what really happened. And uh, if you remember, that's the one that's socially mixed, where there's powerful men taking any women that they want that appeal to them. Now, let's work through some of the words and see if we can explain that. Sons of God. Sons of God was a term uh, back in those days and... Through the Old Testament, you can find it a few places where it's talking about powerful people, about people with titles, kings and princes and aristocrats and and those kind of folks. So if it's talking about kings and nobles and aristocrats, men of renown, it says later down there in verse 4, powerful men. 
power-hungry men, if you will. And if you know anything about civilization, that's kind of how it works. <laughs> this one really stands the test of experience. That's the way things happen. Um, those people that got powerful, that took control of other people, they began to take as many women as they wanted. That's what it says. It says they married any of them they chose. If one looked good, they took her. Okay? Now, um, why does that sound good? Why, why does this story seem the best to me? Uh, number one, it's real similar to what happened with Lamech there, remember? Lamech was getting powerful. He took two wives and he told them, I killed somebody because he wounded me and I'm, nobody can do anything to me. I can get away with it. Okay? Sounds like that's where we're going here. It's the same kind of story. Um, there were um, the, the men of renown, the Nephilim. We need to talk about Nephilim a little bit. Uh, Nephilim doesn't really mean giants. Okay. The only other place Nephilim <clears throat> is used is over in Numbers 13.33. And it's really talking about the Anakim. We read about them this morning or talked about them. The giants that Joshua saw in Canaan. There were giants. There were big people. Well, there's big people today. Uh, just a fluke of nature, a pituitary problem. There's all sorts of reasons that there's big people. Well... Nephilim doesn't, it doesn't particularly refer to them. In Numbers 13.33, it's talking about the Anakim, which was a race of people that seemed to be bigger than other people. But Nephilim here is really not the, the best word. It really comes from another one, which means a man of valor. And that technically means one who falls. And I think what he's saying is the people that fell on other people that oppressed other people. It's translated the men of valor, the, the people with wealth and power and strength. Okay, I don't think it's talking about giants at all. I think it's talking about powerful men. men the princes, the aristocrats, the, the great men of the day that assembled lands and countries and, and people and oppressed them. And If you know history, that's what happens. That's what men do. Or they get power hungry and they oppress others. And they do the kind of things that we read about exactly here. Anybody ever see Braveheart? Hadn't you need to. Learn a little history here, folks. Uh, Braveheart, the English, Sir Edward Longshanks, I think was his name. I just popped in my head. And the aristocrats, the nobles, what did they think? They think they could get away with anything. They thought anything in their domain belonged to them, and they could do anything with it they wanted, especially the women. Okay, remember, that's where the story starts. The English guy over the area rides in and sees somebody getting married and say, hold it, I've got the right to her first. And he took the woman for himself. Okay. That's the way this power thing works. 
I think that's exactly what he's describing here. This is the way the earth went downhill so quickly. Uh, I think the best translation of it, well, let me say something else before we do that. The men of renown or the Nephilim or the ones who fall on others were already there. They weren't the offspring. Okay, Read verse 4. Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards. There were men of renown, powerful men, that were on the earth in those days. And when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old. Men of renown, it perpetuated itself. That was also in Braveheart. Remember the son that was supposed to take over for the king? He wasn't very good at it. He wasn't a man of renown. Okay? We won't go there right now, but he, he wasn't a man of renown. Anyhow, uh, the, the Nephilim were the men of power, the ambitious men, the despots, the autocratic that seized women and power as they wanted. Okay, If that's what this is talking about, look how fast the earth gets wicked. Okay? And that's what happens. That's what happens in, in civilization or kind of lack of civilization almost. When, when a few men think they can run everything and nobody can tell them what to do, and they can kill anybody that they want and take any woman that they want, and all that, things descend into a mess real quickly. Okay, So that's the way verse 1 through 4 describes it. And if I'm right, and that's what we're talking about, is powerful men taking as many women as they want and controlling the earth. Or, if you want to say Canaanites and Sethites, okay with me. But whatever, the earth got so wicked that verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. He looked down and he saw what had happened. Okay. So now let's talk about God's reaction. I'm a little ahead of myself here. Verse 3, his first reaction, he says, My spirit will not contend with man forever. What had happened? Man had crossed the line. I don't know where the line is. It's evidently somewhere worse than it is today because God's still letting us go. It's hard to believe it could be much worse than today. But it evidently is because we're still rolling along. But back in this day, in the days of Noah, God said, okay, I'm not going to put up with this forever. They've crossed the line. I'm going to give them a warning. I'm going to give them 120 years and Noah can preach to them and all that. But they've crossed the line. Verse 11 of chapter 6 says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the real best translation word for that is ruined. Earth was ruined. I mean, we see that sometimes in things that we we have around the house or that we're we're working on or a project, and we say, I think I can save this. You know, I think I can rebuild this. I think I can make something out of this. And sometimes we look and say, nope, that's ruined. Got to get it all out of here. Got to start over. And that's what he's talking about here. The earth was ruined. He didn't think he could fix it. So he just said, I'll start over. 
Verse 6, the Lord was grieved. His heart was filled with pain. Verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people. Destroy both them and the earth. All right, that's where the flood came from. Man got so wicked that the way the writer describes it is that's all they ever thought of was evil things to do. Kind of rings a bell these days, doesn't it? But anyhow, God's reaction was, okay, they've gone too far. I've had it. Uh, My heart's filled with pain. I I can't put up with this anymore. I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. Now, let's contrast that with all this is going on on the earth. Here's God's reaction. Now, what's Noah doing? This is interesting. What's Noah doing in all of this mess? Chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless among the people of his time. And he walked with God. How did he get called righteous? Hebrews 11.7 says he got called righteous because he built the boat. Well, he hadn't built the boat yet here. So why does he get called righteous? Faith. He walked by faith. He believed in God. He did what God told him to do. In fact, the next verse, verse 22, says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He was obedient. And I think that's specifically replying to the instructions for the ark. But he was righteous before he built the ark. So before that, he did everything God said. All the rest of the world did nothing that God said. They did what they wanted. They didn't obey God. They didn't have any faith in him. They didn't follow him. Noah alone in this generation, he and his family, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. They were righteous. They were blameless. They walked with God. Okay, so that's the picture of the days of Noah. That's an amazing picture. I mean, the entire world. And Noah and his eight. Now, let's see if we can apply it today. Luke chapter 17 is where this kind of came from. Jesus said that just as it was in the days of Noah. It's going to be like that again. He said people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. So if we draw a connection between the days of Noah, how evil it was, God's reaction, Noah's reaction, to the end times, we may learn something. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warning Timothy. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Paul says in the last days before the Son of Man comes, it's going to be a terrible time. Do you think if Noah would have read those few verses back in his day, he would have said, that sounds familiar. That's what it's like here. That's describing a people that all they think of is evil. They don't have any concern for God, much less obeying God. But they just love themselves. That's the first thing he puts in the list. Okay. Now, the other corresponding thing is, we don't have much detail about it, but Noah worked for 120 years, and nobody believed him. We know they mocked him and scoffed at him. They had to. And Jude and Peter say that's what's going to happen in the last days here. Go to Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter only, actually. Verse 17. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Men that that scoff at anything good. You say, yeah, but God says this. We don't care. We don't care what God said. Second Peter. Second Peter three verse three to four. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Okay? So he says there's going to be people that when you tell them, you better straighten up. It's going to rain. Well, not rain this time. It's going to fire. People will say, yeah, right. You've been telling me about this for 120 years. Hadn't happened yet. Jesus says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Nobody's going to buy it. They're going to think it's not going to happen, and then it's going to happen. So Peter, in 2 Peter, not only tells us about the the mockers and the scoffers, down in verse 10, he says, here's what God's going to do. Here's God's reaction. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In the days of Noah, what was Noah's message? God is going to destroy this earth with water. It's going to rain so hard, he's going to drown everything. Remember, they hadn't seen rain. Remember, they they didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. They didn't care. All they thought about was themselves. They didn't believe Noah, but nobody believed Noah. And this is kind of an amazing story. The fire is going to come and destroy the earth. Heavens are going to disappear. That's what God says. That's his reaction. 
He says, there's going to come a time, and I'll decide when it is. I'm being patient so far. That's what this whole chapter is. He, he wants more people to come to him, so he's being patient. But at some point, the scales are going to tip. We're going to cross the line, and he's going to say, that's it. It seems to be getting closer and closer to me, but I don't know. And I have no idea how patient he's going to be. But at some point, he's going to do what Second Peter 3.10 says. Now listen to this. Remember Noah's reaction? Listen to what Peter says. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? If this is the truth, if this is what's going to happen, we know Noah's story. Now I'm telling you this story. And if this is what's going to happen, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with the promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven, a new earth, the home of righteousness. You think Noah ever thought, come on and get the rain started? You know, I don't know how long he had the ark ready to go before the rain, but I bet he got tired of preaching. I bet he got tired of everybody else being evil all the time. Come on, let her rain. Come quickly. That's what Peter's saying here. If this is going to happen, and it is, you ought to be living a righteous life, a blameless life. You ought to be walking with God. You ought to be obedient. You ought to be living that kind of life, and you ought to be ready. The days of Noah. A lot of lessons in the days of Noah for us in the days that will come. If you're here this evening and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we'd be happy to help you put Christ on in baptism or pray with you about some change in your life that you need, whatever you need tonight. Let's stand and sing and come.